Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. I still have them on my my speed dial and I can't manage to erase it because I feel like I'm erasing a part of him. This is Death, Sex, and Money. I said, over my dead body. And she said, no, Daniel, over mine. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. I'm married. Then why'd you sleep with me? And need to talk about more. Nothing says I'm sorry like money. I'm Anna Sale. It's been almost exactly two years since Jane Chung lost her dad. He died in the morning of Halloween in 2014. I miss talking with him and holding his hand and his laugh. You know, like, he and I are very similar. We don't have to say much to each other, and then we can say so much to each other. We're very much in sync. My mom and I are always cautioning we're so different. Jane says her mom can be a little overbearing. That made things tough when they moved into a one-bedroom apartment together after Jane's father's death. Living together lasted less than a year. Jane now lives on her own in an apartment in Koreatown in Los Angeles. That's where we talked. Jane's life today is completely different than how it was two years ago. Back then, Jane was living in New York City. It was crazy. <laughs> I loved I loved New York. The energy is great. It's pulsing all the time. There's always something to do. Jane moved to New York when she was 28. She was dating a lot and working a lot. She was a co-founder of a startup called Kloof. It was kind of like Instagram for pet photos. And I would call my dad every day, and I would tell him, like, all the news. And I'm like, Dad, as soon as I sell this company, I want to help you make your dreams come true. I want to get you out of that dollar store. Jane's dad owned a dollar store in California. Her parents had originally come to the U.S. from Korea for her dad to get his Ph.D., The dream was that he was going to graduate and he was going to go to Seoul National University, which is kind of like the Harvard of Korea. But uh, he had been asked to be a professor. Um, And so that was kind of the plan. Um, But he met God. He was studying a lot of religions at the time. He was Buddhist, looking at different religions. And um, he just became a passionate follower of Christ. Jane, her mom, and her older brother became Christians, too. Her parents helped start a new church. And after getting his Ph.D., Jane's dad decided that academia 
wasn't where he wanted to be. For a while, it was a little tough. I think my dad was just kind of soul-searching. And my uncle said to my dad, you know, you have to kids uh, put the kids through college. It's really expensive. Why don't you help with the dollar store? There's a lot of cash involved. Um, just a simple transaction. You could just learn it so fast because you're smart. This is the way to like get your kids to school. So that's what he did. The dollar store didn't completely pay for college. Jane went to a private art school. She got some scholarships and took out a loan. Her parents took out a loan. And Jane worked a lot of jobs. I was a gallery monitor, a fitness monitor. I worked in public safety. I was an RA, worked at a cafe, and I hustled. That didn't let up after college. Jane moved between different design jobs through her 20s. She saved up, even bought her parents a house. But career-wise, she never found the right fit until she moved to New York. I was so confident because everything seemed to align. And so I went to Chicago to, it was like my first vacation in like two years to visit my aunt and uncle. Uh, And the next day I got a phone call and that was when my mom called me to tell me that something had happened. My dad had been held up before, three times, owning a convenience store. Um, twice was a to- with toy guns. So, my mom always used to tell me to like pray that we're safe, and I used to worry about it so much. And so I I used to pray that specific prayer, like, God, I'm just worrying about this too much. Like, can you just take care of this? And it's in your hands, and I'm not gonna fret about it. Like, I trust you. So tell me about what you remember about that phone call. I thought my mom had called me super early. Her voice was really weird. She kept on saying, your dad, your dad. And she kept on screaming, call the helicopters. And I'm like, call the helicopter. What are you talking about? Call the helicopters. And then it got really staticky, and I couldn't hear what she was saying, and she was hysterical. So I I had thought, oh, my dad died. And it was like the feeling that you just kind of know that something awful happened. That morning, Jane's mom and dad had driven from their house to the park where they took morning hikes. They pulled into the parking lot. And this guy... He comes up next to my dad by the car door. He demanded her dad's wallet and keys, and he had a gun. Maybe he thought it was a toy gun. Maybe he thought he wasn't really serious. But my mom said before she knew it, he shot him twice in the head hmm. right next to her. And she said it was so loud, she, she like for a second like didn't know what happened. The man who shot Jane's father was 19 years old. He fled the scene and robbed and injured several more people that day. And the cops found him later that evening in his house, watching TV with my dad's wallet and keys on him. By then, Jane was on her way from Chicago to be with her mother. I just remembered while I was in Chicago and my aunt and uncle 
giving me a prep talk saying that I have to be strong for my mom. And so I, if I had to cry, like I should cry everything here. And when I see her, that should be strong. So when I saw her, I did everything to be strong. So where was your mom when you got, when you finally got to their home? So by the time I got back, she was at the house surrounded by my family. My relatives were already there. And I just remember she was just like walking like a zombie. Like she just seemed like all the life was just sucked out of her. And I had been so worried about her. Like I didn't know if she was hurt or if she was, there was like no information, you know, um, the moment I saw her, I just remember her crumbling and just sobbing. Yeah. And did you hold her? Yeah. I slept with her that night and mm. that, and I woke up with her and she was just like in a ball, like crumbled. And I told her like, I'm going to take care of you. Don't worry. We'll live together. I'll do anything to provide and protect you. Like, I'll pack up my things from New York and I'm going to come here. And she said, okay. Where did that decision come from? How did you know that so quickly? Just like, it's something that I would do. Like, it's just a natural thought. It's like, I wouldn't think anything else. I mean, they've sacrificed and protected me and did anything in their power. And it's like, my mom needs me. When was your dad's service? Um, so he was cremated. Uh, and we did a kind of a memorial service for him. Like four days afterwards. Yeah. And I just remember when his ashes came and the whole family was hysterical and crying and I just like couldn't be in the house. <laughs> and they had just like returned the one thing in a plastic bag, which was like my dad's wedding ring. And it was just surreal to me that he, you know, someone that you know and can feel is just all contained in a box. And it was just... When you had said to God, can you take this, can you take this worry and take care of this, this worry that my father's could be harmed and then he was harmed. How did you process that? Oh, it's something I still process. I think when you give something to God, I just assume that God was my safety net, and that safety net was gone. I almost felt betrayed by God, or that He was not protecting me. He allowed something so bad to happen, and I didn't know why. I just felt like my life was crumbling. I was so hurt, really disappointed. I think most people were angry at the murder. I think I was more angry at God. Coming up, 
Jane leaves New York, her job, and her life out on her own to help her family move forward. What we did was we sold the house I bought my parents. And with that money and my dad's insurance money, we bought my mom a car because my dad was shot in the car, so we lost that car. You know what makes you think a lot about death, sex, and money? Becoming a parent. I am now back from maternity leave, talking to you from the East Bay in California, where I'm now based. I've missed working these last few months, and I'm learning a lot now about working parenthood, like how we now have to schedule late recordings about porn around my babysitter schedule. Or that I might urgently have to leave to go back home because I brought my breast pump, but not the parts that are on the drying rack next to my sink at home, and I had to rush back to go get them. And then I did that again just a few days later. But we are doing this, and we have some live events coming up to celebrate my return with you. In San Francisco, we've got two things coming up. This week, on October 27th, I'm joining W. Kamau Bell's show, Kamau Right Now, in San Francisco. And at the end of next month, on November 30th, I'll be interviewing Bravo's Andy Cohen at the Castro Theater. I'm also coming to Chicago next month. WBEZ is hosting us. I'm talking to actor and writer Mara Wilson at the Music Box Theater. More info, including how to get tickets, is on our website at deathsexmoney.org. Just click on the events tab. I'd love to see you there. On the next episode... It's funny because I always play characters that are drunk or stoned. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Always. Actor Amy Landecker. She plays the oldest sibling on the series Transparent. She told me about how her sex life today compares to what it was like in her early 20s, before she got sober. Once you get to blackout, you know, there's really not much you can do to protect yourself. And no one that I know has done anything to me that I didn't consent to at the time, whatever consent means when you're completely shit-faced. So... This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalyst for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Jane Chung's father was 58 years old when he was murdered in 2014. After his memorial service, Jane went back to New York. She needed to say goodbye. I told my mom, I'm like, Mom, can you just give me four days? I'm going to pack up, say goodbye to my friends, and I'll be here before you know it. So then I went. I packed up like took half my clothes and I had to tell my roommate, I'm like, I'm so sorry. You have to find another roommate. I'll help you search. Uh, 
I told all my friends to meet at Ace Hotel so I could say bye to them all at once. Mm. And I just remember feeling so sad that I was saying bye to everybody that I loved and the city that I loved. What was it like for you to live with your mother again after being out on your own for years? Oh my gosh, it was awful. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you're... Uh, any grown person that goes back to live with their parents is like the situ- this weird situation. It's like Twilight Zone. I mean, they think that you're still like 16 or 15 in their eyes. So, you know, when I'm like getting ready to go out when it's like 9 or 10 and putting on my makeup, my mom's like, what are you doing? Aren't you going to go to bed? <laughs> and I'm like, what are you talking about going to bed? And then she'd be going to morning prayer at five in the morning and I would be sleeping on the couch and she would like make all this noise going back and forth in the living room. And I'm like, oh my God, like I want to sleep. And she's like looking at me like, are you still sleeping? And I'm like, of course I'm sleeping. It's like 530 in the morning. (laughs) Um, She would always say, you know, I'm praying for you, praying for your husband. I'm like, I don't want to hear it. (laughs) Cause I get really annoyed when she starts like, that whole, like, I'm praying for your husband. Yeah, thing. what do you say when she says, I'm praying for I'm your like, husband? I'm like, mom, change your prayer request because uh, <laughs> I don't want to hear it. <laughs> you can't really change how a Korean mother thinks anyway. You just have to accept it. <laughs> do you... Have you dated differently because your mom is close and can watch what's happening in your life? Um, yes. (laughs) I would go out around like nine and then come back at two or three and that would totally freak her out. But I toned it down a lot because I knew she was like constantly fretting. And so, yeah, I, I definitely think that my way of dating is also different. I think I'm a little bit more open-minded on who I date. What have you noticed? I think I always had this idea in my head because I was that girl who'd like pray and like list down all the things that I want in a guy. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I have have many of those lists. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, you know, probably my diary is since I was like 10. (laughs) So I had this like idealized version of like what the guy should be like when I came to LA I dated this guy he was like kind of that guy that you thought maybe I would be married to uh he was tall he was smart uh good looking and uh, you know he's Korean so he could talk and translate with my mom and and I was like oh my gosh maybe God's like throwing me a bone after all this hardship (laughs) so there I thought wow, okay, I think maybe he could be the one. So we went out for like a a month and a half. And then when he asked me why I came to LA, you know, I was really hesitant to tell him, but then finally I I told him the real reason. And then the next day he just like stopped texting me and calling me. Mm. And so that made me feel really awful because I was hurt that he made me feel like damaged goods. And so that was when, like, on Tinder, I'm, like, swiping right because I'm, like, I just need to get a house because I'm fighting <laughs> with my mom. That was when I landed on this guy. And 
I thought I would never date him because he had said he was a personal trainer. And I'm like, I get worked out by a personal trainer. I don't really go out with one. <laughs> but that was just the snob in me. So then we met up. And he was funny. And, you know, I kind of told him early on just, like, why I was here in L.A. And he just immediately teared up and held my hand. And he mm-hmm. said, you know, I am so sorry. And I just thought, you know, what a different reaction from some guy who seemed to have it all and great on paper. And then here's this guy who might not seem to have everything on paper and like had a really warm, empathetic heart. And so that was when I thought, you know what, maybe he's worth worth a second date. That's when he told me that he had two children. I'm like, Oh my God, it's a bomb. <laughs> I'm like, no way. And so I I was like, let's just be friends. Obviously, when you're like friends, you just keep on hanging out and things get romantic. And then every time I'm resisting it, it just he's very persistent. In my world, in my family, they were just always kind of against this idea of divorce. It was so hard. It was like a year and a half of us dating and me constantly breaking up with him because I would have so much anxiety over if my mom found out or I felt I was being dishonest and what does this say about my integrity? When my mom, my aunts, my uncles, they found out that he was divorced, they were like freaking out. And then, oh, no, not just divorce. He has two children. Like, what? You know, um, I'm here to help out my mom. And here she is having heartache over it. So I struggled a lot. Um, And I think it was because I lost a lot of love. And he gave me so much love. And he also, very similar to my dad. uh, Super tenderhearted, generous, kind. Um just very warm. So I just had this like internal conflict for the Mm -hmm. longest time. Um, But at the end, I decided to just end it because I felt like for now it was the right thing to do. Why? I'm ready to get married, whether it's to him or not, it's to somebody he is not sure if he wants to be married again, um, which is totally understandable. But my dad used to say, you know, when it's meant to be, if your life converges together and if it diverges, it's not meant to be. And I just started to see, like, maybe it's diverging. Do you think you're broken up for good? Yeah. It's just been such a roller coaster that... I need to move on. Did you have a sense of what your dad wanted for you? Yeah, my dad always had this like archetype (laughs) of who I should be with. And he always said, you know, he has to be like quiet, but strong. He should always like know how to handle you because you're 
you're a piece of work. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, a, a guy who can plan because I'm more of a big picture person, less detail oriented. And he, he also used to say, you're ready for marriage when you can like ride the plane without any mishaps. Cause I'd like forget something or I'd almost miss my flight. <laughs> I go on the wrong day. I once took a plane and landed in the wrong city. So we, he, he used to joke about that. And when you think about him, like right now, what do you miss? I miss his like essence. I miss his presence. I miss his voice. And it makes me sad that like, any parts of him feels like it's fading away. Jane now lives about 20 minutes away from her mom. She and her brother are still financially supporting her. Jane and her mom talk every day, and they see each other at least once a week for dinner on Sundays. And after not working for almost a year, Jane's now freelancing at a design firm in L.A. She and her co-founders had to sell their startup, that app for pet photos. They lost money on the deal. So now, in almost every way, Jane's rebuilding. So in art school, we always talk about process, and sometimes it's unpredictable, and you work with how it leads and takes you. I was never a process-oriented person. I think I was a very task-oriented person, so that was really hard for me to grasp. Always struggled with it, because for me, everything came so naturally to me. If I want to dance, I'll dance and like become like the cheerleading captain you know so it was just like I always had goals and I would like try to do my best to get those goals done and then you realize like you collect things in life you gather pieces you don't know what you're gonna do with those pieces but somehow it maps to something in your future or maybe it might not you don't know I think that's what God does. I think he's an artist. I think he collects experiences and brings people in and out of your lives, teaching you or bringing new insight, perspective, and then it can become a bigger piece of work. That's Jane Chung. Her father's murderer pled guilty, and this past April, he was sentenced to 40 years to life in California prison. Jane wrote a statement that was read at his sentencing. She said she hoped he would get a second chance to build a life that he's proud of. She said she hoped that she'd get that chance, too. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm now based at the Center for Investigative Reporting in Emeryville, California. They produce the great investigative radio show and podcast called Reveal. Check it out. The Death, Sex, and Money team includes Katie Bishop, Chester Jesus Soria, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. A big thank you to our interns, Ali Lesperons and Rich Rinalik, for all of their work this fall, including on our episodes with guest hosts while I was away. 
You can find me on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money. And subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can find out what's coming up, read emails from our listener inbox, learn about other podcasts we're listening to. I recently found out that my own husband is not subscribed to the Death, Sex, and Money newsletter. I'm sure there are more of you that I would be disappointed in. So go to deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter or text the word newsletter to 69866. And one more thing, we're on Instagram now, too. You can find us at Death, Sex, Money to see behind-the-scenes pictures from the DSM team, including, of course, photos of our pets. America loves pets. We have three times more pets than children. Did you know that? <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like an opening line in a pitch yeah, meeting. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. 